Everyone has an idea, but is it right? Everyone seems to know what a Christian is, how the Christian life should look, and what kind of place the church should be. But are we even close? What if we could know? What if it looks different than we think? What if what God is building is more than a group of good people, but a community? Join us as we walk through the book of Philippians and see together a beautiful community. So we are in, we, we've got about five weeks left in this series in Philippians. Five weeks left in the series. This is the last week in which I will be, as someone said earlier, walking on tables. Um, for the record, these are not tables, these are risers, but they will be gone after today as the graces play is over. Um, we have five weeks left in the series in Philippians where we've been asking what it will mean uh, t- to be called the church. What, it, what should this community called the church look like? And what should we be as we're part of it? And this week, we, we turn towards a concept that if you've been here at Holy Cross any amount of time, you've probably heard ad nauseum, right? We think it's pretty important. It's, a, it's an important paradigm through which to view the faith. Uh, but, but even still, it can sound strange because, you know, most of us, I would say probably all of us to some degree, when we talk uh, faith, right, we begin to enter into categories that are like moral versus immoral, Right? Religious versus irreligious. And what we want to do here at this church is kind of switch those discussions from those things, from moral and moral, religious, irreligious, to dependent versus independent. And this is because the Bible teaches that you can be very moral, very religious, but desperately independent from God. We weren't made for rules, we were made for a relationship and a beautifully dependent one. So if you have your place, we're in Philippians chapter 4 this morning. If you stand, that's our habit here. In honor of God's word, we're going to be reading verses 4 through 7. And I I should, before I read this, I should warn us, for some of us, if you grew up in the church, uh, these verses I'm about to read are probably very familiar to you. Some of you have even been beaten up by them. Especially verse 4 and verse 6. So what I, would, what I would challenge us all to do this morning is to try and hear them anew, to try and hear them again uh, for the first time, and then be open to what the Holy Spirit would have for us. It may be a lot different from than what you think. Okay? This is God's Word. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is God's word given so that we might flourish. Would you pray with me? Father, uh, meet us in our neediness this morning. Some of us are desperately aware of our neediness. We know, as we hear your word read, that that, Lord, we are full of anxieties, that joy is far from us, that, that prayer is difficult for us because of those things, and so we know our neediness this morning. Others of us, we don't know our neediness because we're feeling very confident and strong, and all that really means is we're probably just one, uh, one event, one circumstance away from being in that same place because all of us are in need of you this morning, and so we ask that you would come, that you would open our hearts and our minds, that you would 
speak to us, that you would preach your gospel to us. Let Christ and everything he has done come to the fore, let the one who speaks fall to the wayside. Jesus, you alone hold the words of eternal life, and so we pray these things in your name. Amen. Have a seat. So, like I said a second ago, if you've been a Christian for a while, you've probably heard uh, these verses, what I would say, misused. Right? Because I've heard it to justify a lot of things. Uh, I've heard it to say that Christians shouldn't really feel anything but quote-unquote joy. Right? See, Paul says to rejoice in the Lord. So any other emotions are kind of off the table. We've got to be joyful. I've heard it used to beat up people struggling with anxiety. I've even heard it used at like a formula, right? That if you're anxious, all you got to do is pray, and then it's all going to go away, right? Just pray. Isn't that what Paul says? Just, just pray. But none of those things work, do they? Look, if you're here this morning, and most of us in this room would self-identify as Christians. If you, if you're, if you identify yourself as a Christian here this morning, my, my hope is that as you've come into this place, you've left pretense behind. Right? There, there's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't struggle. There's no such thing as a Christian who, who, who can't at some point in their life relate to these things that are said in this passage. Maybe you're like, well, anxiety is not my shtick. Well, maybe it's not, but that doesn't mean you're never anxious. That doesn't mean you never deal with these things. They, they come about. So, so let's drop the pretense. Let's be honest. Those kind of things, like, well, I'm just going to choose to rejoice in the Lord. That doesn't work, does it? The, 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 I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna choose to not be anxious and instead I'm gonna pray. And that doesn't work, does it? We don't have to pretend. Here's the deal. If you're a human in this room, and we all are, here's one thing that is true of all of us. We are finite. We're finite, right? That, that means that we are limited by tons of things. We're limited by our energy level. Some of us more than others. We, we are limited by our strength. We're limited by our ability to comprehend reality, like what's going on around us, what's going on inside of us. We're limited by the fact that we exist in time, right? So, so my experience of things is only right now. We're limited by lots of things. And what that finitude does, what that, that fact that we are finite does, is it creates in us anxiety. We don't know and we can't control what is going to happen in the future. brings anxiety. It brings rage. Because we're angry that we're not enough. And it also creates in us this desire to exaggerate our ability. To exaggerate to ourselves and to others our ability to, to kind of hold everything together until we blow it tremendously. And all of this is born out of the fact that we believe that we shouldn't be finite. That we might be more than finite if we just try hard enough. That we must be independent. The Bible, though, says that we're not made for this, and it does so brilliantly here. So what this passage does, and there's an outline of your bulletin if that's helpful, it gives us a posture, it gives us a practice, and it gives us a promise for dependence on God. Okay, And, and dependence on God, that's an interesting phrase. So Here's what, here's what we're going to define dependence as this morning. Dependence is trusting God to meet us in our fears, to cover over our failures, and to care for our futures. That's what it is. It's, it's uh, trusting in God to meet us in our fears. 
Notice it didn't say take away what we're afraid of. To meet us in our fears, to cover over our failures, and to care for our future. So let's, let's, let's break that down. Let's get into that. And, and here's the thing. This passage is really easy to walk through. It's one of those things that kind of lays out really nicely for us. So we're just going to do that. And we're going to do that first with the posture. The, the posture of, of dependence begins with joy. Look at verse 4. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Now, <laughs> look, if, if you are at all familiar with 90s subculture, like this is something that you can definitely hear Ned Flanders saying, right? Like, the little Simpsons neighbor is, rejoice, rejoice in the Lord. Like, that's, that's, I hear that when I hear this. But here's, here's the way we normally hear this rejoice in the Lord. We hear, be happy. Right? Be happy. Always. Again, I'm going to say, be happy. This, is the, this verse is the birthplace of the crazy idea that Christians should only be happy all the time. Which, by the way, only works if you throw out the big book of Psalms in the middle of your Bible. If you just toss them out, you can believe that. Uh, but if you actually read them, you'll notice that that's not the case. Okay? This, this is the place where the, the, the whole situation, that, well, how's it going? Well, I got the joy of the Lord. Like, that's, that's where this all comes from. Like, and it... And it really comes off silly. There are two reasons for this confusion. One is our misunderstanding of what joy is. And the other is our misunderstanding of where joy is rooted. Okay, where it's based. Because you see, first and foremost, joy in the Bible does not mean happiness. Happiness means happiness. There are words for that. In both Greek and Hebrew, there are words for happiness. And then there are words for joy. And they are two different things. They are not even dynamic equivalents. They are different. Um, Joy is more about contentment and rest. Joy is more about satisfaction than it is happiness. And sometimes those things go together, right? And sometimes they don't. We often they don't. So that's one of the things. We don't understand what joy is. The second is where it's based. Happiness is circumstantial, right? Like Circumstances lend towards our happiness or our unhappiness. Uh, but joy is not, at least not biblical joy, okay? Again, Paul says here, rejoice in the Lord. Now, what that doesn't mean is some kind of like esoteric spiritual experience. Have an esoteric spiritual experience. He's talking about where your joy is to come from, where it's to be placed. It means that our joy, our satisfaction, our rest is to be in the Lord, not in our circumstances. That's a pretty big difference if we think about it. I mean, think about your life. I can think about mine. How much of our lives are governed by our circumstances? What's going on that day? How we feel in the morning, right? How much rest we got, especially if you're a young parent, right? How much rest you got the night before? Like, your whole life seems to be governed by a reaction, a response to circumstances. And this is why it, is, it seems so nuts to, for us to even begin thinking about what he's talking about. Always. Always. How, what? What does that even mean? But what Paul is pointing to is a central biblical truth. That you and I were made to find our lasting satisfaction, our joy, not in circumstances, not in things that are created, but in the creator of all things. We're to find our lasting joy, our contentment, our rest in the Lord. We're to find our lasting satisfaction in the Lord, not in our money. 
in the Lord, not in our relationships, in the Lord, not in our pleasure. So a posture of dependence looks to God for our joy. It looks to God for our satisfaction. We depend on him for that. Now, here's what that doesn't mean. That also does not mean that Christians have a Pollyanna attitude towards their circumstances. Like, as if your circumstances don't matter. Right? Like, you can have this joy in the Lord. Again, that's, that's misunderstanding what joy is. As if you can kind of go through life as a disconnected, uh, like, unaffected person. No, that's not, that's not what that means. This isn't devaluing circumstances. Dependence doesn't devalue circumstances. It simply places the most value on the most valuable, which is God. So first and foremost, that posture is is joyful. Secondly, it's outward. Look at verse 5. He says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Now that can be really confusing, and the main reason that's confusing is because of that word reasonableness. It's like, so we're supposed to let everyone know that we're like, I don't know, thoughtful people? Like, what, what exactly does that mean? Well, it's hard because of the translation, honestly. It, in the original, what it often means is forbearance, kindness, graciousness, like reasonableness, I suppose. But more often than not, uh, it, it means these other things. And here's where it gets interesting. Scholars will tell you that this word is never used for those who are in power. As if their attitude is some kind of condescending forbearance towards those under them. It is is never used for those who are in a higher position. It's always used for those who, who are not. They're not in those positions. It is a word that's used often of Jesus. And what it means ultimately is looking away from your own interests. Looking towards the interests of others. Look not looking out for number one. Paul is saying, let your reputation. In the world, your reputation, both in your community, like in your faith community, in your church, and outside of that, be one of someone not looking out for their own interests. Now, if you've been with us in Philippians, you've heard, like, Paul's like, how many times is he going to beat this drum, right? Like, a lot. And he does it in multiple different ways, and this is one of them. Paul is telling the Philippians, and, and thus us, right, to be known as people who give themselves. To be known as people who are givers, not takers. Self-giving, not self-protecting. That is the posture of dependence. It is joyful in the Lord, satisfied in the Lord, and able to give towards others. Now, if you're paying attention, and I know that, let's be honest, not everyone is, but if you're paying attention right now, you're thinking that sounds nuts. Or if you're a Christian, you've been in the church for a while, um, you've probably kind of tuned my voice out, turned it into a kind of white noise to prepare for lunch later, or, or, you probably, um, or you've convinced yourself that what I'm talking about, finding satisfaction in the Lord, finding your, your, your rest in Him, and turning your life outward, that's just not possible for you. Maybe other people, but not for you. Okay? Now, there's a reason for that. Because what this is talking about, ultimately, this posture of dependence, is completely foreign to human experience. It's completely foreign. We look to our circumstances when it comes to our satisfaction, right? Think with me. Like, if, if your life is in a mess right now, it is hard to be satisfied, is it not? It's just rough. Like, how do you do that? When, when it comes to our interest, we are dead set on looking out for our own. And even at times, some of us, when we 
try to help others, if we're being real honest with ourselves, we're doing that for us, not for them. We like the way it feels. We like, uh, maybe we feel guilty about something that we've done and we think we can make it up. Maybe sometimes we just want to make sure that other people know how great a person we are. We're doing it for us. We're not doing it for them. To freely look out for the interests of others seems impossible. But here's one of the great things about the Bible. It's one of the things I love about, about uh, biblical faith, what I, what I love about Christianity, what I love about the Bible as a whole, is it tells us both why this is and it's honest about it. Okay? It says that what, the reason why this seems impossible is because of sin, Now, don't check out on me, right? Because I know that what you're thinking is that when you hear me say that it's because of sin, that what's going to come later is me saying, do better. But that's not what I mean, right? Because in the Bible, sin is not just what we do. As a matter of fact, fundamentally, it's not what we do. Fundamentally, it's who we are. It's a state of being. And that what we do comes out of that. We were made for dependence on God. We were made to look to him for our satisfaction. What Paul's talking about here, we were made for this. But once sin entered the world, humanity became turned in on itself. One of the Protestant reformers, Martin Luther, talked about it that way, that that sin has actually folded us in on ourselves, that we, we broke relationship with God, we betrayed him, and we sought our own independence from him. Okay, And when we did that, we became guilty of betraying God. That's what we normally associate with the word sin. But we also became broken. In other words, that that... This, this way of life that we were made for, of seeking our satisfaction in the Lord and, and having our lives turned outward, that, that we actually became stuck in a way of life opposite of that. We were stuck in our state of independence. We became broken, but also we became alienated from God. Like our relationship with Him was broken. So when Paul says, to be known as those who look out for the interests of others because the Lord is near. Most of us, because of that fact, because of where we are, tend to hear the Lord is near as a threat. Right? Go and do this. The Lord is near. It would be similar to telling your kids, like, don't get out of bed. The boogeyman will get you. Right? But it's not what this is at all. This is not a threat. This is the gospel. You see, God didn't leave us in that state of brokenness. This is why Jesus came You and I can't return to dependence on God. You can't independently become dependent. It doesn't work that way. That sounds crazy. We can't make up for our failures because making up for them ourselves compounds those failures. But Jesus came to bring us out of our independence. He came to live perfectly in our place. He came to die to bear the guilt that we earned before God. And so, do you see how that works? When we place our faith in Jesus... We are actually depending on God. So when Paul says, the Lord is near, that could mean temporally, like in time. It could mean he's he's coming quickly. Or it could mean spatially, like he's close at hand. Either way, it means similar things. You can give yourself away. You can let your reputation before everyone be known as someone whose whose life is turned outward towards the interest of others. You can do that because the Lord is who looks out for your interests, is near. He's not far away. He's not distant on a trip. You're waiting for him to come back one day. He's near. He's at hand. You can look towards the interests of others because he has looked after yours. 
He is the satisfaction you were made for, and He isn't somewhere far off. But He is the satisfaction you were made for right now. Right now. So because Jesus has brought us back to God, our joy can be in the Lord. Because Jesus has done this by grace. By grace, which means that you didn't do anything to get it, and so you can't do anything to lose it. That you can give yourself away. So that's the posture, and that posture gives way to a practice. Look down at verse 6. Paul says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now, this is the most difficult statement of this passage, right? Because I don't know about you, but um, for me, the last couple of weeks, me and anxiety, we've been pretty, we've been tight. Like, we've been close, we've been buddies, we've been hanging out. Uh, he tends to come over right after I wake up in the morning, and he doesn't really leave until I go to sleep. Like, it's, it's really hard. And, and so uh, to have someone come and say, stop it, doesn't help, does it? Just stop. There, some of you older folks may remember the Bob Newhart show. There was, there was a skit that he did. You can YouTube it. It's actually really funny, where, where it was like his new, he was a counselor, and his, his thing was he got... He's basically like, you've got to pay me 50 bucks for the first uh, 15 seconds, and then, and then you can leave. And that was his whole method, was yelling, stop it. It was great. Anyway, um, here's the thing. It doesn't really help to say stop it, because anxiety is born out of convictions. Anxiety is born out of assumptions. Anxiety is born out of the conviction that I am alone. You with me? It's born out of the assumption that I am alone. And this is important because this command from Paul only makes sense if you challenge that assumption. If you don't, it's nutty. If that assumption is true, you and I have every reason to be anxious. It's logical. It would be natural. Because the root of anxiety is, I am alone. And we know that we are finite, right? We are powerless. We are vulnerable. Which means that anxiety makes perfect sense. If those things are true, then Paul's command here is ludicrous. But here's the thing. Anxiety is born out of sin, but probably not in the way that you think. I talked earlier about when sin entered the world, right? That we were made for dependence on God, but then when sin entered the world, we all kind of went the other way. Well, here's how that happened. Sin entered the world because humanity believed a lie. We were made for dependence on God, which doesn't just mean that we were made for Him, but that He was looking out for us. But we came to believe a lie. And maybe it sounds familiar to you, because it's not like this is... And there's anything new under the sun. This, this lie hasn't changed. The lie is that God doesn't love us. That he's using us. That he's holding us back. He's trying to just squelch our fun. We believed the lie that we can and should be independent of him. And anxiety is born out of that lie. That's where it, that's where it comes from. It is doubting the good heart of God. God isn't there for me. I've got to take care of myself. He's not going to give me what I most need. You with me? You see how that works? 
And so the rejection of anxiety isn't born out of stop it. It's born out of the rejection of that lie. The gospel tells us, friends, that that is false. That is patently false. You see, the gospel tells us that we weren't looking for God, that you and I weren't on this pilgrimage seeking after him, but that we were utterly removed from him uh, with our little... uh, chubby, happy selves walking towards hell without a problem, like fine on our own. And then God came and sought us out. It tells us that we were, that he was willing to come in the person of Jesus to suffer and die for us so that we could be rescued. Now, some of us are thinking right now, yeah, but what about my circumstances, right? That sounds all good. Well, great. I'll be happy in the by and by. But what about now? What about my circumstances? None of that that you just said, Rick, changes those. And you're right, it it doesn't. It doesn't. Any Christianity that tells you that that kind of faith is going to change your circumstances is a lie. It doesn't. What it does, however, is places those circumstances in perspective. The Bible often argues from the greater to the lesser, right? If God is going to do this, isn't he also going to do this? If God wouldn't spare his son... If he would be willing to come in the flesh and suffer and die, don't you think he's going to handle these other things too? Don't you think he's got that covered? Like, that argument is normal. Basically, what it, what it means is if, if God is taking care of our greatest need, will he not also meet us in the lesser ones? Now, <laughs> the problem is, is that we need to focus on that word need, right? Because you and I tend to confuse those things, confuse needs with wants confused needs with what we think. What the Bible teaches us is our greatest need is the presence of God, relationship with him, and that is ours by faith in Christ. And that is why rejecting anxiety is followed by returning in prayer. Look at the rest of that verse where he says, instead of just being anxious, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. You see, Anxiety drives us away from God. It says, I am alone. I have to look out for myself. I can't trust anyone. I've got to be, I've got to handle my problems, fix my stuff, and take care of myself. That's what anxiety does. I'm in danger. I'm in trouble. I'm alone. Prayer moves us towards God. So let me break down this this statement really quick. Prayer and supplication are basically the same word. Uh, Even Thanksgiving is often used as an equivalent for it. What it means is talking to God, taking your anxieties to him, right? The the apostle Peter in his letter, one of his letters says, um, it's later in the New Testament. He says, cast your anxieties upon the Lord because he cares for you. So taking everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving is a churchy way of saying, take your anxieties to God. Take your needs to him. Now, some of you are like, well, Rick, he's God. Doesn't he know everything? Why do I need to talk to him about it? Like, doesn't, doesn't, he, doesn't he already know what I need? Why do I need to ask him for anything? The, the answer is yes, he does know everything. Yes, he does already know what you need. And why do you need to ask him? Because you're anxious. See, we don't, we don't pray. The Bible tells us we don't pray to inform God of something he doesn't already know. Right? We, don't, we don't pray uh, to, to 
kind of clue God into what's going on in our lives. The Bible is very clear that God knows everything. He is, in theological language, omniscient. Right? He knows all. But anxiety is believing that you are alone. You aren't anxious. <laughs> this is going to be hard. You aren't anxious because of your circumstances. You're like, that's crazy, Rick. But listen. If you're cornered in a dark alley and some dude walks up on you, he's six foot six and has a knife, like you're scared, right? Now, what if you have a roaring lion standing next to you, guarding you? You still afraid? Same circumstances, same enemy, but you're not alone, right? You're not alone. Prayer is about returning to God. It is looking to him to meet your needs, asking for his presence in your circumstances. It's rejecting the lie that that God doesn't love you and embracing the truth of the gospel that Jesus died to restore you to God and to make you his. And that is why dependence is ultimately trusting God to meet you in your fears, to cover your failures, and to care for your future. When we embrace Christ by faith, we look to him to be present in our fears. Present with us. Present when we're scared. To be with us. We look to him to cover our failures. That's what his death and resurrection do. And and we look to him to to be the guarantee of our future. That in the end, we really will be okay. Not because, que sera, whatever will be, will be. But because Jesus is risen from the dead. And if Jesus is risen from the dead and we have faith in him, so also will we. That brings us to the promise. Look at verse 7. Paul says, Do all this, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So, what we normally think of when we read this is that when we pray in everything, with supplication and thanksgiving, making our requests known to God, that we get the, the spiritual warm fuzzy. That's what we think this means, isn't it? The peace of God that surpasses all of our understanding. I will get a warm fuzzy. And it will be awesome. And then we go, I prayed. And I still have the cold prickly. Why do I still have the cold prickly and not the warm fuzzy? Look, I'm not going to say that that is not possible. What I'm going to say is that's not necessarily what that is talking about. Peace in the Bible is also a feeling. It's also a feeling. First and foremost, primarily, it's a state. It's the state that we were made for. It is fullness. It is flourishing. It is is what we were made to be in. The peace of God, the shalom of God, is us reintegrated to be human as we were made to be. It's not possible outside of Jesus, but it is not primarily a warm fuzzy. Thinking good, like feeling like, Ah, my heart's not beating so fast anymore. Of course, it results in a kind of rest. It results in a kind of joy, the joy we talked about before, but it's bigger than that. Paul, what Paul is saying here is that as we embrace the gospel, as we embrace God's peace, his fullness for us, which surpasses our understanding, will guard our hearts. That is a funny phrase. Because that word guard sounds funny to us because we think what it means is to protect, don't we? It's going to guard us, meaning it's going to make me safe. If I pray, oh, sorry folks. 
If I pray about what I'm anxious about, this is why we think this is about our circumstances. Because I feel anxious. If I pray, God will take away the feeling and he'll guard me. He'll make, my, he'll make safety. That's not what it means. Guard in this context does not mean to protect us. It means to hold us captive. It's a prison guard. That's what that word means. It's something holding us captive. How cool is that? What this means is that at the end of the day, it isn't your ability to reject anxiety or to pray that keeps you near to God. He is holding us. And he's holding us captive. Anxiety is pushing away, going, I can't trust you, I'm alone. And he's holding us captive in the midst of that and saying, no, you're not. See, this is huge for us because we naturally think about relationships as a contract, don't we? If if I'm in a relationship with you, it's like, okay, then what that means is if I do this, he'll do this. Right? If I do X, then I'll get back Y. And that's the way we view a lot of relationships. They are economic. But every command, and there are multiple commands in this passage, every command here is given a promise that isn't there as a payment. It's actually there to enable the command. Listen to me. We think, okay, I pray and God gives me peace. I rejoice and he takes away my anxiety. No, no, no. That's independence. That's how messed up our thinking is. It's how broken even our minds are that we we go, okay, if I do this, then I'm going to get what I want. No, no, no. That's independence. That's independence. These promises are different. We rejoice in the Lord. Our in the Lordness, I said that last week, our in the Lordness precedes our rejoicing. We only rejoice because we're already in the Lord. We look out for the interests of others because the Lord is near. Not because as a threat that he is near. We are able to look out for the interests of others because he is near caring for us. We reject anxiety and return in prayer because God's peace will hold our whole person, our hearts and our minds captive in Christ Jesus. But all of this is crazy apart from the gospel. Fears are real. Like I said, me and anxiety have been close this past couple weeks. That's because fears are real, right? They're, they're not something we've made up. We're not, um, we're not some new age group or, or Buddhists that kind of look at things and go, well, that, none of that is actually real. And it will just, we'll uh, overcome it. We'll elevate above it. Good luck. That's not, that's not it. Some of us here are here this morning are afraid because our lives are falling apart. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's your relationship with your kids. Maybe it's just your ability to keep things straight. Your lives are falling apart. Sometimes that's because of something we've done. At other times, it isn't. For others of us, things are okay. But we know because of how jacked up our pasts are that at any moment, at any moment, everything could go haywire. And we're anxious. 
For still others, we just can't seem to find what is going to satisfy us. And to say, lose your anxiety just seems fantastical. But I'm telling you it isn't, but only because of the gospel. You see, joy in the Lord is only possible if you have embraced him as the very core need of your soul and returned to him in Jesus. The only way that you can ever look to the interests of others and not yourself is that believing that in Jesus, God has actually looked out for your interests. If he hasn't, I, look, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you've got to get this much. You got, it, it, all the rest of the stuff that I said, you could just kind of shoo it off as like Christian self-help, I suppose. It's not, but you could shoo it off as that. But you need to listen to this. You and I are wired to look out for our interests. Unless we believe that someone has looked out for us, we will always be stuck looking out for us. And so if the Bible is calling us to, no, look out for others and not yourself, it's only because we have come to the conviction that someone has given us the only thing we need. The only way you can reject anxiety is by believing that God's promise to be with you is not determined by your performance, but by Jesus' performance. Not by your circumstances, but by God's word. Without the gospel, without believing that you're standing before God, your relationship with him is based on nothing that you've done or haven't done, but purely on Jesus offered to you as a gift, Apart from that, you will always approach life and relationships from the standpoint of economics. In other words, like, what do I do to get what I want? You will always, we'll always struggle with anxiety. What do I have to do to keep up, to be okay? And you'll always be proud. My successes are because of what I did. But with it, with the gospel, you can rest. You can rest. Because you've seen that ultimately dependence is trusting God to meet you in your fears. That he's present with you. You're not alone. To cover over your failures. That he is forgiving of you because of Christ. And to care for our futures. That he provides for us in Christ. Would you pray with me? Lord, over all this, we ask your blessing. I know if my friends here this morning are anything like me right now, what we are struggling with is believing that any of this is true. There is something probably in our souls that wants to believe it, that thinks, really, can it be that easy? Can it, can it be that, that I'm not alone, that he is with me in Christ? But then there's a lot of other stuff in us that goes, no, 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 don't trust that. You're just going to get beat up. So, Lord, we can't embrace that unless you work. Whether we are Christians here this morning or not, we need the Holy Spirit to work in us. So I pray that, Lord, you would do that. You would work in us to embrace the truth of what dependence is and that you are worthy of our trust and that we can see that you're worthy of our trust because of what you've done for us in Jesus. And as you do that, Lord, would you make us a joyful people satisfied in you who have a reputation for being, for being people who look out for the interests of others first. 
We ask that you do that because you alone will get the praise for that because we can't make that ourselves. (laughs) Only you can. So as you do it, we'll give you thanks and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.